Raymond Antrobus is a poet and educator. He was born in Hackney, London, and has achieved many accolades for his writing, including the Ted Hughes Award, the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award, and the Guardian Poetry Book of the Year 2018. He sits on the board of English Pen, an organisation that promotes freedom of expression and literature across frontiers. Raymond also writes for children, and his picture book, Can Bear Ski, illustrated by Polly Dunbar, was published by Walker Books in February 2021. It's a story that was inspired by Raymond's childhood, from his early experience of not hearing and being misunderstood, to his diagnosis as deaf, and the journey of coming to terms with hearing aids. The main character in the story is a young boy, Bear, but it's also the story of Bear's father, who learns to adapt his behaviour so the two of them can communicate positively. It's warm and tender, and although it's about being deaf, it's a story charting emotional highs and lows, and it has a lightness of touch, which together with Polly Dunbar's illustrations, set the book apart from the dry tone that is typical of information books on this subject. I started by asking Raymond about the terminology we should use to avoid causing offence and what the difference is between capital D, death, and lowercase d, death. When thinking about the history of deaf people and deaf history, language and terms are, you know, still carry weight. So I'm grateful for getting to clarify this. Capital D deaf refers to someone who identifies as culturally deaf. Usually they would have gone to a deaf school or be part of a deaf community. Their first language would be sign. And that's kind of, you know, a way to assert that they are culturally deaf. Uh, small d deaf is um, refers to people who are more maybe medically deaf. So people who may not necessarily be uh, educated or clued into cultural cultural deafness and often people who are small d deaf are people who become deafened later on in life so that's that's mainly the difference between those two in terms of where we're at now with how to refer to these terms uh culturally sensitively terms like hearing impaired hearing loss are considered ableist because they focused on the loss, on the, because this kind of idea of someone that is damaged. The more sensitive term to use nowadays is just deaf or hard of hearing. Those are the two terms that I see deaf people in the deaf community particularly most responsive to, deaf or hard of hearing. Thank you for clearing that up. Right at the top of the programme, it means that I'm going to uh, try to make sure that I uh, get it right throughout the rest of our recording. And it is so important for, for those of us that work with children to think about the terminology that we use. Um, as I said, we're going to mainly be talking about your brilliant picture book, Can Bears Ski. I've been reading it to my husband <laughs> and he enjoyed it too. Uh, it's a story of a young bear and his dad. And at the beginning of the story, they have communication difficulties. Bear thinks his dad is asking, can Bear ski? And it emerges that the young bear can't hear 
So he's taken from an assessment to an audiologist. Hearing aids are prescribed. And the second part of the story shows how this changes the bear's life and importantly, how his dad adapts too. But the title, Can Bear Ski? It's a repeated refrain through the story, but where did it come from? For me, there were so many different things that that came into it. Basically, my deafness was diagnosed late and, you know, I'm a child, so I don't really know (laughs) what is going on with me. I'm just suddenly told one day that I'm going to have to have plastic ears And I love this idea of having plastic ears. And I started thinking about, you know, does that mean I'm going to be like some kind of cyborg? Is Robocop going to be my friend and uh, end up in, you know, audiology clinics in the Donald Winnicock Center, which is no longer there. But the audiologist I had there said to me, you have ski slope deafness. And the plastic ears and the ski slope deafness were the two bits of language that really stayed with me um, and kind of framed my understanding of what was going on with me. And so I remember that was a genuine kind of mishearing of me thinking about ski slope deafness. And I, I lip read as well. So when I'm speaking with people, I'm often piecing together. People who might not understand deafness might say, oh, you don't appear like a deaf person or whatever but I've had a lifetime of practicing so Kambersky was a was a genuine mishearing and I know it doesn't sync up exactly uh syllabically um with can you hear me Kambersky but deafness is this quite elusive thing so I can't remember if I wanted to title the book Kambersky but that was to to me that was like an important refrain and an anchor for the story and it's a story as well that I would tell when I, you know for, for the last 10 years or so I've been going into schools as a poet so I would share this kind of anecdote version of Kambersky as a way to help students understand me and my relationship with language and my history where I'm from and why I want to share that with you and how it how it can become you know a story or a poem or some kind of creative thing. So Raymond one of the things that I was really interested in is the way that sound and silence recur throughout the book and I guess the silent side of it challenged my perceptions quite a bit. Sound was very much a felt experience and I don't think I appreciated that until fairly recently when I attended a Fatima Al-Qadira gig at the (laughs) South Bank Centre in London and the physical sensation vibrated through my diaphragm I almost fainted because it was so physical the sound so I wonder, can you tell us something about how you experience sound? And can Mm. you feel different qualities of sound other than volume? So like I said about ski slope deafness, which just means I don't hear any high-pitched sounds. I never heard birds singing. Um, I never heard kettles whistling. Any high-pitched sound. I didn't hear doorbells until I was, you know, seven, eight. And I just remember being introduced to this whole new frequency and then immediately being like oh wait I've been responding through 
vibration. So the, the, the dad bear really is based on the kind of presence my dad had when he would try to wake me up in the morning. He was very heavy footed. He had this, you know, very deep, loud voice. So it really did, as a kid, feel to me like this kind of just changed the atmosphere of any room he was in, you know? So the ways in which I think I've really come to explore that now as an adult is through poetry. But I have been thinking about this idea that uh, this conversation that I've been having with some deaf friends of mine and deaf poets about this idea of sound and silence, both being kind of inventions of the hearing. Mm. In, the, in this way and how we navigate them and have to kind of introduce in some ways um, a lot of hearing people to this thing that you, you just mentioned about a different way to understand what sound is and who can access it and how, how is it useful in our culture. Because, um, you know, my whole life when I've gone into rooms, I'll test the acoustics, I'll say, you know, I'll say something very loudly um, and then I would just listen and think about how far I can hear, how much echo is there. And then I try to imagine if I'm doing like a reading or something, I think about, okay, what's this room going to be like when more people are here? Growing up, I avoided clubs and bars and big kind of get social gatherings. I've always been very much kind of trying to uh, make my interactions more one-on-one. So that's another way in which I've kind of navigated sound and had to find a way to talk about it and, and what it is to me. One of the things that I was really interested in in the story is that after Bear is given his hearing aids, his life changes, but that change isn't always welcomed. And I was struck by the scene where he loses, in inverted commas, his hearing aids. So one of my friends has a child who's profoundly deaf and has cochlear implants. She's preschool, and she has discovered, like the bear in your story, that she can turn off her equipment when she wants to <laughs> for her own advantage. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know whether you were ever mischievous like that. Me, as a kid, if I'm honest, yes. Uh, again, there's, there's there's a few ways I can go with this because I'm also thinking about how offended people would be when they when they realised that I was doing that. Actually, <laughs> like, oh my god, did you just turn off your hearing aids? I've been talking for ten minutes, and part of that wasn't necessarily a mischievousness. It was also a kind of like exhaustion, a lethargy. Uh, mm -hmm. Just like I'm, sound is 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 tiring. It takes a lot of effort, mm -hmm. so you do need to break from it. So, yeah, so it wasn't always this mischievous thing. But, yeah, no, that that was something I do remember doing. And I, and I was very self-conscious about how my hearing aids were understood. The first hearing aids I had were very big, very thick, didn't match the color of my skin at all. <laughs> so, like, you could notice them. And, and, and I, the first year I had them, I remember people saying, oh, wow, what's that in your ears? And some plastic ears. Whoa, cool. You're like a spy. You're like a secret agent or whatever. And I liked that attention. And then when I got a bit older, I started getting picked on. Then it kind of became this thing where it was like, oh, you're stupid because of that. And then I started noticing it, the change from the teachers as well. I think that was really damaging, actually, when even teachers were talking to me like this. And I'm like, I, 
so strange that I can hear you better now and now you're talking to me like this, you know, <laughs> you know. So there was a real lack of deaf awareness everywhere. If I'm honest, deafness at that point was something I was very embarrassed about. I became very ashamed of, uh, something I tried to hide. I grew my hair long so my hearing aids would be hidden. I didn't think anyone would like me or, or, or fancy me. I remember all of that. Uh, so this book has been unexpectedly emotional, like seeing the impact it's had and seeing what it's meant, particularly to uh, deaf families and deaf young people. And I've got a few messages from young readers who have friends that, uh, that wear cochlear implants or they wear hearing aids or they're learning sign. And they're saying, oh, you know, you've helped me understand what it is my friend is going through. That has just kind of rocked me <laughs> in a way that I, I didn't expect. It's interesting, possibly uh, now writing your adult poetry, you're writing at a stage where you've come through some of that difficulty, but possibly writing the children's book took you back to some of those earlier feelings that uh, were very raw. So I wonder what kind of memories it triggered for you. So like I said, the the care I got at the Donald Winnicott Centre was so beautiful. And all of the audiologists and the receptionists were clearly deaf aware. So they spoke very clearly and they looked at you and they saw you. And I mean, I think that that kind of roots my... Um, positive associations with, with, with deafness and, and uh, with early memory of deafness. And that is actually a question I've been getting a lot at readings from young readers. You know, can you tell us something good about being deaf? Mm. You know, I get that. I actually get that question a lot, even uh, going into schools. What, what, what's good about it? You know, I'd ask back, you know, what do you think is good about it? Or how do you feel about it? And this word came up quite often, particularly with young deaf people who are mainstreamed. So they don't have any kind of cultural deafness, deaf nurturing or anything. And they would say, you know, th th this word really stung every time I heard it. Useless. I feel useless. And it's staggering because I, I recognize that. I remember that. Mm -hmm. Because the uselessness is not the fault of the deaf child, of, of, of deaf people. It's the world that hasn't accommodated or understood mm -hmm or had any the, the deaf awareness to understand that we, we have di different needs and everyone has different needs, of course. I did want to talk about reading. So I recently read the Nuffield report on mm. deaf children and attainment in reading. Mm -hmm. And the statistics aren't good. Mm -mm. It says 48% of oral deaf children and 82% of signing deaf children have reading scores below their chronological age. And that report goes on to say that earlier identification of deafness and advances in hearing aids and cochlear implants have un undoubtedly improved the outlook for deaf children. Mm -hmm. But as more deaf children than previously now have excellent speech mm -hmm. and attend mainstream education, there is a danger that teachers may overlook the need for support, particularly yeah. with reading. Yeah. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about that, that, you know, the challenges of literacy development for deaf children. Absolutely. It's something I think about every time 
I write something. Every time I'm in a room reading poems or telling a story or in a classroom, I, I take that history everywhere. And I know that when I was growing up, the statistics were actually higher than that. They were around 75% of people born deaf growing up, in many cases illiterate. But statistics are also complicated because, again, they, they only assess what's understood about functioning in a hearing world. So if you apply cultural deafness to that space and the way we assess what language is and that, that, that kind of hierarchy of the spoken language, the signed language, the written language is complicated. But I really do think that I had so much privilege in that I had such good teachers. I had so much support. I had, you know, like in the book, I had speech therapy, hearing therapy. I learned a bit of sign. And having gone into deaf education now and visited deaf schools, not just in London, not just in the UK, but around the world. I went to Jamaica. I went to Trinidad. I went to Ukraine. And, uh, and, and it was a constant barrier. Even though there are more deaf people being born now, there's less support and less funding. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that four million pounds has been uh, taken away from special educational needs in the last year. It's like it's inhumane when you think about it. But I think it's because people don't understand it. Mm -hmm. And there aren't enough voices pushing against it who can say, look, this this is so, so important. You're gonna so many people are gonna fall through the gap if we're not properly supporting and looking after people with different needs. But going back to specifically reading and writing, growing up, I think I'm just naturally a reader and a writer. It's just something I did. I had a little diary. I wrote stories from as far as I can remember. And I remember a teacher picking up on it and saying, oh, you know, that's cool. And my mom also would kind of be very encouraging of it. But then I remember my English homework, having red marks all over it and you're getting your Y's the wrong way around and all, all of this kind of pathological stuff, which I remember it confused me. I said, like, oh, I really like doing this. Why are people suddenly telling me that I can't write or that I can't tell stories? And then that led on to, you know, even in secondary school, I was around 12, 13, and I was writing poems in my in, at the back of my English book. And I had a teacher say, where did you steal this from? <laughs> you know, and it was like, I realized now that it's just been about the expectation of teachers. And there were, there were all kinds of things at play there. I think, I think classes at play, I think race is at play, I think disability is at play. And language, I think, is a, is a route into that. I don't think you can div divorce or separate the idea of the way someone uses language to how we understand them and their background and their social economic history you know all of that is in there even in in signing there are people who would say you know that's kind of like working class people sign that's even more abbreviated that's slang and then you've got a more kind of maybe more like middle class sign and people who go on to not just learn you know british sign language or american sign language but international sign language so even within you know it's still showing how language is a kind of portal into all of these other parts of our identity and our history I mean, the bit that struck me was that as technology improves, uh, deafness may become more invisible and the invisibility 
doesn't stop the need for support but we can think that there's no need for support so you know what you've said is so um interesting to me um I wanted to ask you a question about your poetry, Raymond. So I've been reading uh, your poetry collections in advance of our interview uh, today. And I wanted to ask you, it won't be the first time you've been asked, but I wanted to ask you about your redacted poem, the Ted Hughes poem, Deaf School. The reasons for that are obvious. (laughs) And, you know, it's shocking to read. Uh, The original in some way reminded me of that kind of cultural attitude when we used to have spastic society images outside of sweet shops, you know, and you put a pen, it it reminded me that Mm -hmm. poem of that kind of cultural um, attitude. But my question is, what was your immediate response the first time you read it? Was it to strike through the poem? Was that the first emotion? And Although it's impossible to know a writer's intentions, what do you think Ted Hughes was trying to communicate through that poem? And should intention ever be part of the conversation? Three questions. <laughs> yeah, no, great. I'm so glad you brought this up. So for listeners that don't know, Ted Hughes wrote a poem called Deaf School. It was a commissioned poem in the early 80s. Ted Hughes was asked to do his own research and find out what it's like to live without language. That was the commission. It wasn't to go into deaf schools. Ted Hughes took his own initiative with this assumption, with this idea that who doesn't have language? Deaf people. And he goes into a deaf school in London and he, and he observes a day and he sits in the corner and he writes this poem, observing kind of what he can see. He uses language like um, simple pools and something about like unresponsive to vibrations of air and this whole point. And then, and then he does this thing of, he uses like animal metaphors, like comparing the kids to monkeys. It's, it's bizarre. And as a disclaimer, I would say that I am, I am a fan of Ted Hughes, the Iron Man. I loved that book. I loved that book as a kid. Hawk in the Rain, one of the first poetry collections I read from first poem to last poem and was just, again, a visceral response. Didn't even understand what I'd read and just felt something from it. And so when I got to this poem, my initial response was um, anger, disappointment, hurt. I was triggered. But like what you just said, I was like, What's it, what are his intentions? So I had done the research and said, what, where, where does this come from? So, I, so that's how I found out the backstory of the poem. And writing this book, being given the opportunity to speak to young deaf people in their classrooms, I feel now that there has been a comp- almost a complete resolve and a complete revision. It's now done a full 360 redacting the poem, risking a, t- a, a lawsuit from Ted Hughes <laughs> and, pu- and publishing it was only 180. The full 360 was writing Kambersky and going into classrooms as deaf young people and saying, this is us. Look at us. Aren't we wonderful? <laughs> Are we, the, isn't, isn't existing funny? Isn't it an adventure? And it's just, it's unbelievable. It's like, where, does the, where the hell did that confidence come from? To, to speak that way about other people. And I think, you know, 
it, it matters what you call a thing is is a line from a poem which I often think about. It really matters what you call a thing. And so I really do think that people are complicated. People make mistakes. In the future, I might write a terrible poem you know that's about something that I just didn't realize and someone tells me and it's happened in the past I've written things and someone else has had to say listen I'm not sure about the way you've written about this person or this character or this you know you have to be mindful of when you're speaking to something which you just don't understand and you don't know about at the same time I really do think that this is a this, this kind of point we're in in the culture where people are very quick to shut down people who have made mistakes or people that have just kind of been really insensitive to something. I think that those are always opportunities to learn. And I think that just completely kind of blacklisting someone and saying, get out my face is a missed opportunity to engage with how complicated love is how complicated admiration is because I could have easily have just not engaged with Ted Hughes and just said F Ted Hughes or forget Ted Hughes I'm I'm never reading another poem of his again but I engaged with it and sure I redacted it but I still engaged with it and um, I once showed that poem I was in a school in Hertfordshire in a desk school in Hertfordshire called Knightsfield and I had 12 deaf students in the class and I told them this story and I showed them the poem. I wish I had it with me now, but when they, when I held it up, I had a student who said, oh, wait, turn the book the other way. So turn it horizontally instead of landscape. So I turn it horizontally and he looks at it and he says, wow, that's like the audio channels on my audiologist's computer screen when he was putting in the cochlear implants. Totally un meant gesture but for me that was like a real moment because it's like oh look what happens when we engage with the things that are complicated with the things that are harmful to us and and engage with them creatively and look at the experience it created in a classroom so you know it's rich but it's complicated and murky such a good point. I mean, there are poets who I admire as poets and hate their politics. Ezra Pound would be one. I can Ezra admire Pound the poet. Like I can't like yeah. the man. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I agree. I agree. So, what I want to do is thank you so much for your time today. I think it's going to be very helpful to our listeners. I think it's going to enable us to have deep and importantly honest conversations. I think that will be really useful. So thank you so much. I've in, I've enjoyed it and I've learnt a lot today as well. Thank you, Nikki. I appreciate you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.